Church of Thyatira, beginning at verse 18. I'll read through. Uh, Take note, this is the smallest city in the smallest church, but the longest letter. And unto the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes unto a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know thy works, thy charity, thy service, thy faith, thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he that searches the reins and the hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works." But unto you, I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden, but that you, but that which you have already, hold fast until I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end... To him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and the ve- um, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, <clears throat> even as I received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. You know, the scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as you read that last verse, it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit presently is saying to the churches. Jesus is dictating, John is writing. And Jesus has something to say to us this morning. It says what he's saying, not just to Thyatira, to the churches, plural, And it's something he's presently saying. So this church has some distinctions. And as we go through this, we're going to realize the last four churches all have a promise in regards to his coming. So Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea are all church systems that still exist today. Because part of what he tells them is in context of his return. So we, we look at these things. There's some interesting things to take note of. He, uh, he says, I know your works. Then he's going to talk about their works, those who have polluted and seduced the church. And then lastly, he's going to talk about my works. There's a lot of doing that's going on here as he works through. And he's going to say, I gave her space to repent. Even the, the most vile and uh, you know, the most, you know, apostate, even the most sinful, the Lord, the prescription is the same, repentance. I gave her space to repent. I provided time 
King James says she repented not. It's, it's in the structure and the language is she refuses to repent. She denies repentance. It's of her will she's chosen, which speaks of a system today that is still alive that has refused to repent of their deeds. So it's interesting as we move in. Look, we have a literal church, historic, in Thyatira, 35 miles east, southeast of Pergamum. It was in a crucial valley. It was had been a military station to guard Pergamos. As long as, as, long as Thyatira was safe, Pergamos was safe. And there's a problem in the church with this woman who's got herself into a position where they're allowing her to teach. That's a literal problem in a historic church. And the Lord addresses that. This is also, I believe, a picture of church history. You can't be dogmatic about that. But if you change the order of any of these churches, it doesn't roll out that way. Uh, we know that the, the early church was the apostolic church. Ephesus called the desire. Ephesus means the desired one, and the Lord warned that church. He said, "He said all of these great things are going on, but you're losing your first love. You've left your first love. That, that's that's the atrophy that's happening." And evidently, again, that church repented of that because they were around at least for three centuries. After that comes an era of persecution, Smyrna, and the Lord ch- challenges that church in regards negatively about nothing because. This is a church that's laying down its life for Christ and six million martyrs from 100 to 300 A.D. And then Satan realizes what it's doing is it's spreading the church. Uh, the, the church is purer than it had been uh, in the first century. The, the Tertullian said the blood of the saints is the seed of the church because it cost you to be a Christian then. It wasn't popular. It wasn't something you did. Uh, If you became a Christian, chances are you're going to be taken by the Romans and thrown in the arena, which purified the church. But it didn't stop the church. So Satan then realizes, and in Pergamos we have where where his throne is, Satan realizes if he can't beat him, join him, so he begins to bring compromise into the church. So the church at Pergamos is still true to the Lord, but it has compromise inside of its borders. And that's what the Lord talks to Pergamos about. But when we get to Thyatira, the church, of course, in that trajectory, allowing compromise, now is totally seduced. And this is the first time the Lord talks to the remnant that's in the church and not to the church itself. So some very interesting pictures. Jesus dictating... um, And as we go through, we'll hit on some of the historic things. Look, longest letter to the smallest church. Again, not written to the church, but to the remnant inside the church. First time in the seven letters, the second coming is mentioned in verse 25. He says, till I come. First of four systems that are around until today. He calls himself in verse 18. If you look there, it says, and unto the angel of the church of Thyatira, write these things, saith the Son of God. It's the only time in the book of Revelation, the entire book, that he calls himself the Son of God. 28 times he calls himself the Lamb of God. The only time he calls himself the Son of God is there. Certainly, chapter 1 gives us a picture of him in his deity, and he's called the Son of Man there. 
but this is the only place in Revelation where he identifies himself as the Son of God. And that's significant as we come into this. It's the only time in the book of Revelation adultery is mentioned down in verse 22. Uh, there's fornication, sexual sin, of course, mentioned through the book. The only time you have adultery in this letter. And it's the first time in the letters to the churches where he warns the church and pronounces the sentence. He does both here. He warns them and he pronounces the sentence because he says they refuse to repent. So it's certainly interesting. Thyatira, this city now, historically, what sets the stage for this, and I think it's important, is it, it was a city that had more guilds than any other city in Asia Minor. Um, it, there was no worship of Caesar here. This was a completely pagan city, but there were different guilds, like you know, today you have unions. Might give a picture that there were those who worked with wool, those who worked with linen, those who worked with garments, those that worked with leather. There were tanners, there were potters, there were bakers, there were slave traders, there were bronze smiths, there were those who dyed clothing. It was a big industry there, and each one of those trades had its own deity. Each one of those guilds worshipped its own god that they believed was relative to their trade and the prosperity of their trade. And then they would have feasts, and you would expect everybody that worked in that business to come to the feast, and they would worship the god uh, and, and sacrifice to the god relative to their trade. And often the worship was immoral with prostitutes, priestesses, and so forth. And then they would believe by doing that, it would prosper the trade they're in. So here's the, the dilemma is, people in Thyatira are getting saved. And all of a sudden, where they work, they're saying, oh, come on, man, what are you, a Bible thumper? You can give me this Jesus stuff. You need to get in here and, and worship with us, or, or the trade's going to go out of business. What are, you, what are you doing? What are you talking about? You need to be part. It's going to cost you your job. So the Christians then began to be ostracized begin to lose employment. They're thinking, what do I do? I got a wife, I got a kids, I got to work. What's, what's going to happen? They're putting me out of the schools, they're putting me out of the guilds, they're putting me out of, you know, what do I do with all this? It's interesting, in Acts chapter 16 there, as Paul comes to Philippi, it says there's a woman there named Lydia. She's a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. This is where, so church historians believe she went from Philippi back to Thyatira and probably shared the gospel maybe possibly where the church started in her home in Thyatira and she was involved with dyeing things red they had the sap from a particular tree that had a red resin that, that they would use or they had this little mollusk this little clam kind of thing and they would take murex they would take out of its throat it had one drop of, of purple dye. I don't know who choked the first clam to find out that was in there. That's the person we're worried about. But they would get these shellfish and open them up and they would milk out this drop of purple stuff. One pound of it was worth over a thousand denarii. A pound was worth over three years' salary. Figure what you're making today. Multiply that by three and a pound of this red, this scarlet dye was worth that much. And the Romans bought it because their, their, their 
their capes, their outfits, you know, everything. That was the color of Rome, the red and the, and the scarlet and so forth. Um, so possibly she's the one who introduces Christ to Thyatira. It's hard to say that for sure. But Jesus, you know, he introduces himself to this church unto the angel of the church of Thyatira. Thyatira, by the way, means continual sacrifice. That's going to play into what happens. He says, write these things, uh, um, saith the Son of God. This is what he's saying. He's saying it today. Saith, there's a present tense. Saith the Son of God, and his self-description is who has, perfect tense, and still has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. So he describes himself as the one is deity. He's the Son of God. And his attributes to this church with these problems is, I can see right through all of this. My eyes are like a flame of fire. And his feet like burning brass. Brass, a picture of judgment. It's refined. It's glowing. He's walking in the midst of the seven churches, and, and, and he's able to judge righteously. He sees. He knows. He's the Son of God. Now, he's going to say to them, I know your works. If you look there, his commendation, verse 19 I know thy works, plural, and I know, oida, I know completely, with perception, I know thy works, and your charity, and your service, diakonos, your service to other human beings, and your faith, which can be faithfulness. Your patience here is literally endurance, supermony, and your endurance. Then he says works again, the only letter where he mentions works twice, and thy works the second time, and the last, he says, to be more than the first. So here's what he says to his church. Look, I know what you're doing. I know your works. I see faithfulness. I see charity. I see service. I see your works. And not only that, I realize the last of your works is greater than the first. So this church system that would still be around today, he says, what you do in the end is actually greater. Look, you look at the church, you look at the church, you look at hospitals, you look at orphanages, you look at drug rehabilitation centers, uh, you look at schools, uh, you look at all that the church has done. Buddhists don't build orphanages, you know, just this is something the church has done. And there's a great influence in the world, humanitarian-wise, relative to things that the church does. He says, all right, I see all that. I understand that. But then 20 to 23, he tells them where the failing is. And, and, and because of the failing, none of that other stuff, though it's recognizable, and even in this church system where Jezebel is, there are, there's a remnant. There's true believers that he speaks to. He doesn't speak to the church here. He says, notwithstanding, verse 20, I have a few things against thee because, look, here's, I've got it underlined, thou sufferest. You're allowing this. This is the problem. Thou sufferest that woman, Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, there's something the church is tolerating. There is 
a woman in the historic church. It's hard for me to believe her name is Jezebel. I mean, who does who does that to their daughter? Honey, what do you think we're doing? Oh, we're gonna have a girl, pink balloons. What do we uh, what do we call her? What is that? I always like Jezebel, honey. I knew I was hoping you were gonna say that. You know, I I've never dedicated a Jezebel in all the years I've been dedicating, or, or an Ahab for that matter, but or Judas really. Um, Jezebel, right in our mind, has that you know floozy kind of you know you know image. And he calls her Jezebel. I don't believe that's her name. I guess it could have been. I don't, I don't think it's her name. In, in Pergamos, he says, you have the doctrine of Balaam there. And he picks a character from the Old Testament. And what they're doing is relative to the way he did things in the Old Testament. And now he told the children of Israel to, to sin. Now he's saying this woman is a Jezebel. She says she's a prophet. She self-proclaimed. Jesus doesn't say she's a prophet. She's claiming to be a prophetess. Not unknown in the church. Remember, um, Philip uh, had four daughters that prophesied. Remember that? And Paul ended up staying with them on his way to Jerusalem. Dads, try to imagine four daughters that prophesy. <laughs> Better start saving for our wedding. You know, imagine four, da- four daughters that, that prophesy. You know. Dad, you're driving too fast. Dad, the speed limit here is 30 miles an hour, not 50. Dad, you shouldn't watch that. Those commercials, Dad, don't, you know, turn that off. Dad, don't talk like that. You have an attitude today, don't you, Dad? You know, it's a matter of four daughters that are prophets, prophetesses. That'd be a tough house to live in. Uh, but they knew about Philip's daughters. Anna, who was in the temple, and Simeon Anna, she was a prophetess there when jo- Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to dedicate him. So it isn't something they hadn't heard of. But this woman is self-proclaimed, and she is teaching, Paul said she shouldn't have been in that position, and she's teaching the church to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. In, In direct defiance of the apostolic, first apostolic conference they had in Acts 15 in Jerusalem, where they said, you know, it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no, no other necessary burden than these things, uh, that you don't eat things sacrificed to idols, you stay away from blood, things strangled, and from fornication. The, the warning that the, the apostles gave to the church is stay away from idolatry and sexual sin. This woman's in the church and telling them that it's okay. She's seducing them. This church is a church that gets seduced. And no doubt some of that was relative to the guilds that they were, what do we do? It's okay, you're under grace. You can go, you can kind of mess around. You can, you know, worship their idols a little bit, eat those things, and you can, you know, you have some sexual, yeah, look, you're forgiven by the blood of Christ. You don't have to worry, you know, it was a combination of both things. As how much of that goes on in the church today? There's a leniency towards sexual activity, sexual preference, gender issues, alcohol, drinking, idolatry. We have to include everybody. We can't be mean, you know, the universalism that sneaks into the church. There's too much of that in the church today. And the one who's addressing all of this is the Son of God. This is not a theologian. This is not somebody with an opinion. This is the Son of God with eyes of flame of fire, 
his feet like brass, and look, to the worst of them in this system, he offers repentance. He doesn't shut the door. He said, turn to me. This is emptiness. It's darkness. You're going to be lost. The Son of God. He says here, as he describes this, he says, and I gave her space, a time, chronos, I gave her space to repent of her sexual sin. So it seems like the literal woman doing this herself is involved in immorality in the practices that she's teaching. I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she, King James says, repented not, it's, it's called a endured a present tense. She, she refuses to repent. It is in her, it's her will not to repent. It speaks of a condition that is static, that is still taking place today, whatever this system is. So look, we're introduced to this system that comes along here, and into this system is this woman teaching something other than what the apostles taught, so she's putting her word uh, on equal authority as the scripture. No longer solo scriptura. Now church practice, church dogma, all of these other things, they're taking a place next to the word of God as though they have the same authority. Jezebel, when she came to Israel, she, she instituted her own priesthood. Okay. Um, she endorsed idolatry and immorality. That was certainly Jezebel herself was involved in immorality. She tried to hunt down and kill the pro- real prophets of God. And the church comes into an era where, historically, from Ephesus to Smyrna to persecution to compromise, then to complete seduction, where the church introduces robes, priests. The veil was torn from the top to bottom. There's no need of a priesthood. Priests were introduced. Prayers for the dead. Purgatory is is instituted into the church. Purgatory. Now you got three options. Heaven, hell, or purgatory. There's no purgatory in the scripture. And of course, purgatory set the stage for indulgences. Because if you end up in purgatory, you could buy your way out. You could pay for prayers for somebody so they could spend less time in purgatory and finally get to heaven. It wasn't the blood of Jesus anymore. It's indulgences now. Martin Luther, when he was a priest, a Catholic priest, torturing himself, trying to figure out what genuine faith was, he looked and he saw the people in his day, and he he said the wealthy people would go out Friday morning and think, well, I'm going to go out tonight. I'm going to drink. I'll probably get a load on. I'm an idiot when I do that. I might punch somebody. I might sleep with a prostitute or something. So I'll go out Friday morning before I even do any of that, and I'll buy all the indulgences I need so I don't spend any time in purgatory for my behavior. And he said the poor people couldn't afford to do any of that. And he said, this is insanity. This can't be right. And of course, it's what's brought him that the just shall live by faith. But there's still a system that's alive where there's purgatory, where there's indulgences, where you buy prayers. It's no longer the blood of Jesus that does the work. It's a system that's around today. Thyatira means continual sacrifice. You know, the Catholic Church, my dad was Catholic. Look, I don't want to offend you if you're Catholic, so just sit tight because next week I'll offend somebody else. <laughs> I'll offend Protestants next week. Uh, 
But the Catholic Church embraces a continual sacrifice. Every time the Mass is offered, transubstantiation actually becomes the literal body and blood of Christ. So there's a continual sacrifice. Peter, who they say was the first pope, says he died once for all. And he was married, by the way, the married pope. Um, you, you know, so there is a system that gets hold of the church. You, you study the Dark Ages. At one time, there were three popes, all at the same time. All, you know, they were all waging war on each other. Uh, they all excommunicated each other. Three of them at one time. I mean, the church history is not a pretty thing. And in this era, no, look, I'm not saying in this system, there are believers. It's been wonderful to hear, you know, some of the Catholic priests, some of them standing up, some of them taking heat for saying this is biblical. This is morality. It's wonderful to hear some of them. And no doubt in that system, I personally, when I was growing up with friends with a priest, I know he was a believer. I know he was born again. Uh, what a wonderful time here uh, on a Sunday morning when a nun, and I won't tell you, she was the head of a big order. She was sitting here and she came up afterwards and said, Pastor Joe, I, and people had got saved that morning. I know we believe in the same Jesus. I know we believe in the same Jesus. I said, you know, I had a great time talking to her. She, and I was in Genesis. She said, nobody ever taught us the Old Testament. I, I said, all right, if I give you Genesis, will you listen to it? She said, oh, yeah. So it was like 50 tapes. It was cassettes in those days, you know. And I said, when they're gone, all you need to do is let me know. And I'll give you Exodus. And she got to me after a while, and I sent her Exodus. Again, all he said. Then Leviticus. She wrote me a letter. She said, I'm in a nun's conference. It's so boring. I can't wait to get back to my room and listen to my Leviticus tapes. <laughs> so in those systems, there's real believers. There are real believers in those systems. So we, we have to be careful. But the system itself is rotten, not the individual believer. The system itself has become seductive. You know, it wasn't until 1967 Catholics were allowed to read the Bible. You know, they took communion from, it has to be served by the priest, no longer can people have communion with one another. Catholics are not allowed to read the Bible for 1,400 years, 1,600 years, because only the priest could understand it. It was in Latin. My dad was Catholic. We'd sit there, kid. And I'm thinking, oh, this is maybe this is purgatory. You know, <laughs> I was a kid. I was a kid. You know, but but you had you had the evangelical movement in America. The magazine Christianity Today was born out of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. People were flooding stadiums, and all of these Catholics and Catholic teenagers were getting saved. And they were going back and they were discontent with the church where they couldn't understand the mass. They couldn't read the word. They started going to other churches. So in 1967, the Vatican made an edict that Catholics were allowed to read the scripture. Look, it's not just Catholicism. Martin Luther saw what was going on in the Lutheran church today. He'd turn over in his grave. If the Wesley saw what was going on in the Methodist church, they'd be burning down the church. You know, the, the churches, as they go on, they lose. The first church losing its first love. They left it. You know, the second church finally martyred them. It, it purified it. Then the church where there's compromise and, and, and they're allowing some worldliness. This church is completely seduced by worldliness and this Jezebel type doctrine that comes into the church. And he said, I gave her the space to repent, but she refuses. Today, there's part of this system still alive. She refuses to repent 
Behold, I will cast her into a bed. She wants to be a fornicator, an adulterer. I will cast her into a bed. And them who commit adultery with her, now no doubt spiritual adultery, into great tribulation, except they repent of their works. It says deeds here. It's the same word works where he talks about his works and the church's works. Now it's the work of this evil influence. Um, I'll cast her into great tribulation. Is that the great tribulation? It's hard to be dogmatic about it, but obviously any part of the church that hasn't come to Jesus in genuine faith, that doesn't know him in the context of a personal relationship, anybody who's just holding on to religion has gone into the great tribulation. There's no doubt about that. People from all of these different church systems that have come to know Christ personally have a blessed hope beyond and outside of this world. Those who only have religion, they got nothing. And you hope we see so many of them saved during the tribulation period. But he said she refused to repent. She doesn't want to turn. She's made that decision. It's in place. So then he pronounces the judgment. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to cast her in their bed. Those commit adultery with her into great tribulation except they repent of their deeds, and I will kill her children with death. Look, to me, that's the worst thing you get killed by, by the way, is death. Uh, I'm going to kill her children, not his children, born-again believers, what this system has given birth to. I'm going to kill her children with death. Look, this is Jesus, right? This is Sunday school Jesus, Jesus meek and mild. Jesus with the little kids on his lap. It is that, but it is the Son of God. And the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. And he says, those who have turned away, who have no real relationship, who refuse to repent and want to live the way they want to live, they're going to be killed with death. COVID is nothing. We're going to read about the first and second resurrection. We're going to read about those who suffer that eternal death. He says those who refuse to repent, they refuse to turn. They don't want to hear anything about it. They want to live the way they live. They want to do what they want to do. He said, I will kill her children with death. And all the churches will know, churches speaking of those that believe, that I am he who searches the reins and the hearts, the reins, the kidneys. I'm the one who searches the deepest part of the being. And I will give unto every one of you now, talking to the believers in the system, according to your works. There's rewards. Look, salvation is a free gift. It's never a reward. We don't get into heaven by our works, right? We get into heaven because salvation is a free gift. But if we serve him then there are rewards for us to receive. And that's not a bad thing to look forward to. You know, Paul says to the Corinthians, some of you, you're going to go to heaven and your works are going to withstand the testing, the fire, even as gold, silver, precious stones and so forth. He said, others of you, you're going to get there and even the things you thought you did are going to be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. But the soul itself shall be saved. So he says, some of you are getting into heaven with your robe smoking. And that's it, you know. Uh, but, but those are rewards. Salvation's a free gift. Only he gets the glory in regards to that. No performance, nothing you can do. You believe. 
You embrace him as your savior, undeserved, unearned, unworthy of any of it. And by faith, you take hold of Jesus. Then what you do for him, there can be rewards, eternity in eternity that are attached to that. So he said, I will give them according to their works. But unto you, I say, and to the rest, notice, in Thyatira, those in the system, as many as have not this doctrine, this foul teaching, and which have not known, look, the depths of Satan as they speak, I'm not going to put any greater burden on you. He says, he says, those that are in the church, the rest of you, who have not stooped into all of this mysticism, all of this pagan ritual and so forth that's come into the church. The mysteries of, you know, these are the mysteries. He said, these are the mysteries of Satan. He said, I'm not going to put any greater burden on you. And he, there's a word play. Burden and depths, depths of Satan, are basically from the same root. And he said, I'm going to put no other deep thing on you. These people, they think they understand more. They think they've got this insight. They think they've got this license to live in sexual sin. They think they can do whatever. They can be as carnal as they want. This whole teaching of Satan that's come into the church. He said, I'm not going to lay any of that deep stuff on you. It's just this one thing. And look, this is important. Because we don't struggle with complexity. We struggle with simplicity. God created the world. That's not complex to me. That's simple. We struggle with that. Six days, six nights. We struggle with that. That's simple. If you can count to six, you can take that into consideration. Right? The Son of God, with eyes of flame of fire, feet of burning brass, became flesh and walked among us in human feet with human eyes and died in our place. And he rose again. And anyone who trusts him that he paid for their sin on the cross has eternal life. It's simple. He said, I'm not laying any heavy stuff on you. No other burden, no other heavy thing where he says the word burden there. I'm not putting any of this heavy stuff on you. But here's what he asked. That which you have already, hold fast. It means to hold tightly, to cling to. That which you have already, hold fast. Look, look at the world around us today, okay? And I'm going to say this again, and I'm going to say it through this season that we're in. This is not a promise for a Republican or a Democrat. This is not a promise relative to the color of our skin. This is not a promise for our nationality. This is not a promise, you know, for our philosophy. This is a promise for God's children. And it's a great simplicity. I'm not going to lay any heavy thing on you. What I want you to do is I want you to cling to what you already have. Until I come. That's so cool. Because I'm so dumb, I can do that. I have his word. I have his spirit. I have his forgiveness. I have a blessed hope. I have, there's just the simplest things. He said, unless you enter the kingdom as a child, you'll in no wise enter in. Right? Anybody here raise kids? Any of you still raising kids? I know they're 50 now and you're still raising them, right? (laughs) You know, when when your kids are little, give me this, give me that. I want this, I want that. They're not saying, gee, who's going to pay the gas bill this month? 
I'm not worthy of that. My room is warm and I, I'm bad. I poop in my diaper. I never listen. You know, who's going to put milk in a refrigerator? You know, what about the electric bill? This is terrible. They give me food all the time. And I'm undeserving of that. You know, kids don't do that. He said, you have to enter the kingdom like a child. It's prepared. The price has been paid. It's all free because of Jesus. And he doesn't look at us the way people look at us. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. Hold on to that. We are brothers and sisters. We're getting ready to stand before the king. And you see what's going on in the world. Seems like it's soon, doesn't it? Look, again, over and over, Jesus said that his coming would be like a thief in the night. That's not the end of Revelation when he returns, because you've got seven years, you've got the Antichrist, everything. There's a coming for the church and a coming with the church. We'll have fun with that as we work our way through. But he says he's going to come like a thief in the night. He says he's going to come in an hour. You don't expect it. How many of you are coming to prayer tonight? Well, it could be this afternoon then if you're coming to prayer tonight because you're not expecting him, right? It, it, you know, the idea is there's a, there's a preemptiveness about it. There's an unsuspectedness about it. It's like a thief that breaks into your house at night. Look, you look at what's going on in the world, right? If he waits much longer, the church can be standing around going, what's up, man? Where are you? That's not the picture he draws. He says when he comes... It'll be an interruption. It'll be like a thief in the night. There's an unexpectedness to it, a preemptiveness to it. It's got to happen soon. He's coming for his bride. This whole ball of dirt is ready to unravel, isn't it? And there's no solution here. We can fight over it, but there ain't no solution here. He says, this is the heavy thing I'm going to lay on you. That which you have already, you must, it's a present imperative, hold that fast. This is what you need to do. And do that till I come. Just hold on. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of the potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received, now we're going to look at Psalm 2, even as I received of my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who keepeth, that's the tense there, who is keeping my works. What are his works? What are we supposed to be keeping? It says this in John's Gospel it says, then the disciples said unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. He says, you keep my works. What is the work he's given us? To believe on him, the son of God, the one who sent. Look, I get up in the morning and look in the mirror. I got a day's work. Believing on him that was sent. I look at what I see in the mirror in the morning say, you saved that. 
You know, are you sure? Let's check for another day. You, you know, I, I, with all that goes on inside of me, all the, you know, all the crazy stuff that flies in my mind, all of this, you know, you, this is my work and your work to believe on him whom he has sent. Because if he tarries, one day we'll be laying in hospice or in a battlefield or in an accident. We'll be completely alone. Nobody we love and we live to it or been married to or raised is going to be in there. And there's a moment when you realize death is taking hold of your physical frame and you're taking your last breath. That's where our faith matters. That's where the rubber hits the road. That's the whole issue right there. For you and I to believe, I'm going to take my last breath in this world and I'm going to take my next breath in the new world. I'm going to close my eyes here and one second from now I'm going to open them there. And that is strictly by the blood of Jesus Christ. My work is to believe on him whom he has sent. Right? And look, we need to to have a voice. You look at Jezebel and you look at what happened there, all the idolatry she introduced. You and I need to be like Elijah. You know, Elijah came and he looked at the group that called themselves God's people. And he said, how long will you halt between two opinions. If Jesus is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. You can't do both. And Elijah needed to speak to this church and this system that's trying to compromise. We're called to be separate. We're called to be separate. You don't, look, Spurgeon says, you know, when it comes time to die, will I have lived as I have wanted to? getting ready for that moment, you know. Um, He says, this is the work. This is what you need to do. No heavy stuff. Not all that malarkey. Hold on to what you have till I come. What you have is sufficient. What you have is enough. What you have is the ticket to heaven. You hold on to that through the blood of his son. And he said, as we move on, now let me read quickly. We're over time, but those third service people can wait. Um, (laughs) It says in Psalm 2... He says, I will decree the decree of the Lord. The Lord has said unto me, thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. He makes this promise to the overcomers. And says, I will give you power, exousia, authority over the nations. Because we're joint heirs. Jesus is going to do this. We're going to do it with him. I will give you authority over the nations. And he says, and you shall rule them, shepherd them with a rod of iron. And as the vessels of a potter shall be broken to shivers, even as I received my father. Shivers is kind of... Small slivers. Shivers are small slivers. Um, They're kind of smithereens. You know, they're going to be broken, going to shatter. All that you see in the world is driving you crazy. All of the hatred, all of the prejudice, all the injustice, all of that. You and I are going to be part of coming with Christ and breaking all of that to shivers. It will dissolve at the hand of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's injustice. It's wrong. It will be gone. It'll be gone. And we get to be firsthand. We get to be part of that. And he said, I will give him the morning star. People want to go to Isaiah 
Uh, Luke, uh, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, Jesus calls himself the bright morning star at the end of Revelation. We'll talk about it there. But the morning star, more properly to most of them, was it was Venus. It was the north star in the morning. When you saw the morning star, you knew the day was ready to break. That's what he's given to us, isn't it? We're watching the news and we're seeing more than the news. We hear of the threat of epidemics or nuclear war. We see all that, but we hear more than that. What we hear is Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. We have the morning star. You know, for the nation of Israel, the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. But for the church, it's the bright morning star. We get to see it before the day comes and our heart is drawn towards that. And the day is coming soon when you and I will serve with our older brother, joint heirs with Christ, straightening out this dirty old rotten ball of dirt. Won't that be wonderful? Psalm 149 says this, Let the saints, that's us, be joyful in glory. Pre-tribulation, by the way. Let them sing aloud on their beds. I like that. I'm going to have a bed there. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. I always wanted to sleep with a sword. (laughs) To execute vengeance upon the nations and the punishments upon the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written, this honor have all his saints. Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. We're coming with the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, and this mess is going to be straightened out. There's no secret, you know, sanctimonious, mysterion thing you need to know and understand that allows you to sin and still be a Christian that gets you in. You know, you you have a baloney meter in your heart. Pay attention to it. We're called to be separate. We have a different hope. The one who's given that to us is the Son of Almighty God with eyes of flame of fire and feet like brass. And he said, I'm not laying all of this nonsense. I'm not laying on you anything heavier than this. Hold on to what you already have. Hold on to it. You got it. You got everything that, that a human being who I love needs to have to make your pilgrimage. Hold on to it until I come. Then it's all realized, right? And when he comes, we're going to return with him. We're going to serve with him. We're going to be part of the solution instead of the problem. That'll be nice, won't it? Let's stand. Let's pray together. And look, if you're listening on the radio, you're here today, you're part of that system. He calls you, come out of the system. Be mine. I I paid for your sins in my own blood. If you want to pray with somebody after the service, come up. The pastors will be here. We'd love to give you a Bible, some literature to read. But if you know today that you need to be saved, I don't know this, you know. I don't want to be killed with death. I don't want to die eternally. I want to live eternally. And you don't have that assurance. Please come and pray with us. Nobody wants to play church. Church is not a game. Church ecclesia is called out during the week when the sanctuary is empty. There's no church here. The building's not a church. You are the church. And if you're not part of the church, it's because you haven't asked Jesus to forgive your sins. You can't join the church. You have to be born into it. It's a family. You can't join. Got four kids, none of them joined. None of them joined. 
They were all born into it. That's what you need to do today if you don't know Christ. Let's pray. We'll be up here. I'd love to talk to you. Father, we put these things before you. We trust you. And Lord, some of this, we, we could be here for months, Lord. It rides in and out. It crosses so many things. It brings so many pieces to light. It speaks in so many directions. Lord, let us garner as individuals what you would have for each of us here, Lord. No doubt you can speak to every single one of us here by your spirit. And Lord, you can give to us the blessing there is in regards to reading and hearing and then treasuring and guarding and keeping these things. Lord, let us do that. And we trust you, Lord. We look to you, Lord Jesus. We have an ear to hear, Lord, what you're saying. And we pray in your name. Amen.